Thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. I see hard days, harder days for those people. Can you imagine after 12 years of a conflict? There are even harder days waiting for these people. Getting earthquake relief to people who need it in Syria is no small feat in the midst of that country's civil war. It's Thursday, February 9th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, some rural communities are rebelling against the expansion of concentrated animal feeding operations, and why some Democrats think a Congressional Dads Caucus could help ease America's affordability crisis in childcare. But first, a United Nations aid convoy made it into Syria today for the first time since the devastating earthquake in neighboring Turkey Monday. The official death toll is approaching 20,000 as of about noon Eastern. At least 1,300 of those deaths were in government-controlled parts of Syria, according to state media there. But that number does not include rebel-held areas of the country, which is still in the midst of a civil war. And that conflict, now in its 12th year, is complicating efforts to get help to the people who need it. Sherwin Kassem has family in Syria, and he's helping coordinate relief efforts there for Doctors Without Borders. He spoke this morning to Deepa Fernandez. There are many houses that were destroyed previously because of the conflict, and of course, with the earthquake, they were easily damaged. That left a lot of people uh, displaced. My team, mm. our teams actually, let's say, uh, in three uh, geographical areas, witnessed uh, more than 3,600 uh, injured, and more than 550 people are uh, dead. And we are expecting the numbers to be increasing uh, massively in the coming period because the number of dead people in the coming uh, 72 hours will be much higher as the possibility mm. of finding survivors is getting uh, less and less. Mm, I mean, it's 72, almost 80 hours now. And I'm wondering, given the freezing conditions, if that means that teams on the ground just abandon looking for survivors and focus on those people who are alive but badly injured. Yeah, the the problem is that the capacity of the civil defense units in this area is limited. The white helmets, normally they are familiar with saving people under the rubbles and the debris because of the, uh, the airstrikes and the shelling. And, and normally that's happening in one neighborhood and another neighborhood, one city, two cities, 10 villages, but not such kind of a massive destruction. Also, as you said, the winter made things harder. You know, it's, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit a tragedy that I was talking to my mother like a couple of weeks ago and she was saying like, I wish if there would be rain, it's so dry, the crops mm. are not growing anymore. The last two years we are suffering because of the, you know, like the, the food security in Syria is, is severely affected because of the lack of rain. And now after this earthquake, it's raining, there are a bit of floods in, in the in the Asi River Valley or uh, uh, Asi River Basin. And actually, a lot of water entered into uh, some IDPs uh, camps and, and, and villages in the southern part of Idlib because of the, of the river flooding. 
So the the weather uh, situation and the weather condition is actually making it harder than it is. And uh, there is another problem, which is all of us around the world, we, we were sort of, uh, like uh, struggling with the energy crisis in Europe, in, in, in Arab world, in Africa, because of the Ukrainian-Russian conflict, the, the, there was a big energy crisis. And that, of course, is in Syria too. So the, they don't have enough fuel to run generators. I mean, you need some heavy machineries that require electricity and fuel. I heard from some friends that the self-administration of northeast Syria, which is the area that is controlled by the Kurdish administration, are sending um, some fuel tanks toward this area, but still they are not able to access into the, the, the devastated area because of political problems. And on, on the checkpoints, it's a bit complicated to move from one control area mm. to another. So just to show you how complex and how challenging it is. And would that be the reason, because we're hearing just today that UN aid convoys have been able to enter, is it this political conflict that is the reason that the international community hasn't been able to send aid to help Syria like it is with Turkey? Actually, this is one of the reasons. So there is the internal access problems internally inside Syria, uh, international borders and cross-borders problem. So the one I'm talking about is inside Syria, which is the Kurdish control area, which is also a bit uh, supported by the American administration. Those guys are having the, the oil fields. And they uh, there, there was actually an American envoy recently that was there just to co coordinate, let's say, uh, some of the humanitarian aid that can possibly cross from east to west. Because now Syria is divided mainly between three uh, uh, governments or three uh, de facto authorities. One of them is the Syrian government, which is controlling 60-65% of the country. Then the other is divided between the Kurds in the east and uh, the opposition supported by Turkey in the west. And the western part is the most severely damaged part, besides mm. the government control area. So recently the UN, as you said, yes, the first uh, 48 hours they were not able to deliver the aid because the roads were severely damaged in Antakya the province, Turkish province next to the Bab al-Hawa. But the problem is that this corridor is uh, normally the, the, the access, uh, let's say the humanitarian aid access toward uh, Syria through Bab al-Hawa uh, border corridor is controlled fully by the Security Council resolution, which is normally involve United States, involve uh, uh, Russia, Turkey, Syrian governments, which is making it very much complicated. You know, I just can only imagine that it's the regular, ordinary Syrians who are victims of this earthquake who, who might just get lost in the middle of all of this because we're hearing the government of Bashar al-Assad telling the international community that it's time to drop the sanctions so it can purportedly help its people. The French government has sending aid but saying it won't send it directly to the Assad government. It just seems like a, a really big geopolitical fight and ordinary Syrians, what's happening to them, especially the victims of this earthquake? Indeed, and this is what we are trying to do as Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctor Without Borders, we are trying to focus on the population. We are trying to reach people in need, despite or without looking at their ethnical backgrounds, at their religion, at their alliances, uh, their political opinions. So for us, as Syrians, we don't see these borders we want the aid and the assistance to be delivered to the people in need without looking at 
who is uh, in control in this area. Yeah, and might this be, we've seen so many Syrians have to flee their country over the past decade, but even just recently, might this be another moment where Syrians are forced to leave? The issue is that those Syrians who are living right now, the four million people are living in this enclave, Idlib and Western Aleppo, they are already people who have been displaced sometimes between two to 20 times. So people who always were leaving closer to the Turkish border, seeking safety and security. And finally, because after uh, the 20, 2015 EU-Turkish government agreement, uh, Syrians are not allowed to go to Turkey without a visa. So you need to apply for visa and the visa is very hard to achieve. And then the only way is to cross the border illegally. And it is impossible because there is 900 kilometer wall on the border. And now Turkey at the border is devastated too by this earthquake. So that makes it even harder, I imagine. Even to add another layer of the complexity there, there are more than 3.6 million Syrians in Turkey itself. And I would say between 50 to 65% of the Syrians living in Turkey are actually in these four provinces because they were always seeking safety and security as closer as possible to the Syrian border because even after 12 years of the conflict, the Syrians wanted to be as close as possible to their country. Actually, all this area that is now affected by the earthquake, I used to work in every town in this area supporting the Syrian Mm. refugees who were crossing But now, as you said, the situation in Turkey is also very complicated. To be honest, I see hard days, harder days for those people. Can you imagine after 12 years of a conflict, there are even harder days waiting for these people. And to be honest, the situation is very hectic even before this earthquake. But the earthquake added another layer of complexity in this situation. Sherwin Kassem is of Maisons Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders. He's in Amsterdam, but he is leading the effort in Syria right now. Thank you so much, Sherwin. Thank you very much, and have a good day. If you're able and you want to help, we've got links to reputable places to donate money to relief efforts at our website, hearitnow.org. Just click on how Doctors Without Borders is addressing earthquake damage in Syria, and you'll find links there. Coming up, we look at a fight over industrial agriculture in the Midwest and what happens when thousands of pigs and cows move in next door. That's after the break. Maybe you've heard the term CAFO. That stands for Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation. In Iowa, there are nearly 4,000 of these facilities that house large numbers of livestock. And in recent years, new laws have helped expand CAFOs in other states, like Missouri and Nebraska. As Harvest Public Media's Eva Tesfai reports, that's not going over well in some rural communities. In Cooper County, Missouri, CAFOs are a controversial topic. Susan Williams asked to meet in a small local library. And even in this quiet atmosphere, she's nervous about people overhearing our conversation. Just don't want the whole town to hear me. (laughs) A retired elementary school principal and a farm owner, Williams became involved in the controversy back in 2018. That's when a large hog operation called Tipton East planned on moving in less than a mile away from her house. 
The size of the operation, about 8,000 hogs, concerned her, especially since she grew up on a small hog farm. Just the smell and the waste that you had was tremendous with that, and I couldn't imagine what it would be like with that many hogs. So Williams and some other residents brought their concerns, including what it would do to air and water quality, to Cooper County's health department. The department responded, creating an ordinance to regulate emissions and the spread of manure from CAFOs. The next year, the Missouri Senate passed legislation preventing counties from enacting rules on CAFOs that are stricter than the state's. Cooper County and Cedar County sued over the law, taking the case all the way to the Missouri Supreme Court which has yet to issue a ruling. Laws that prevent local opposition to farm operations are common, says Loka Ashwood, a rural sociologist at the University of Kentucky. We see that across the country. She says there are a lot of lawsuits regarding CAFOs in the Midwest. And in these lawsuits, the owners of these concentrated animal feeding operations are more likely to win. That's where people are fighting the hardest to try to defend their property rights, but they're also losing the most. Some farm groups argue CAFOs can be an economic boon for rural communities. Missouri Farmers Care is a group that wants to see agriculture grow in the state. It has a program that designates counties with the title Agri-Ready. Counties have to agree to a set of requirements that will make the county more welcoming to farm operations. Mike Deering sits on the board of Missouri Farmers Care and is also the vice president of the Missouri Cattlemen's Association. He says CAFOs are a net positive for the state. It's food security, it's the food supply chain, and to make sure that we are keeping that local and not having to import, import, import. And so we have to encourage growth. In Nebraska, the State Department of Agriculture oversees a similar designation called Livestock-Friendly Counties. It will work with the county to develop zoning laws and permitting that make it more accommodating to livestock production. But Ashlyn Busick says CAFOs hurt small livestock producers. She works in Missouri and Nebraska and is with the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, an organization that helps communities protect themselves from the negative impacts of CAFOs. When a county is accommodating for the big ag industry, guess who continues to get pushed out of the market? And guess who can hardly stand to live on their farms anymore because of the stench of the CAFOs just across the fence? The Nebraska Department of Agriculture says attracting livestock operations of all sizes is a focus. And they add that a livestock-friendly county is more appealing for new projects. Dodge County, Nebraska has that designation, and Costco opened a poultry operation there back in 2019. Jessica Coulterman is the plant's director of administration. She says Costco chose Nebraska in part because of the warm reception. The other thing that they were really impressed with was the the welcome that they received from the state and the local governments, and also from the business leaders in the area. Back in Cooper County, Missouri, farm owner Susan Williams is still waiting for the state Supreme Court to rule on whether local governments can regulate CAFOs. But whatever the ruling is, she says residents have to keep paying attention. The fight's not ever going to be over. I think this public is always going to have to be vigilant to make sure that the public's interests are taken into account just as much as any industry. But she's also optimistic. Because she says now people are more informed about the problems with CAFOs. For here and now, I'm Eva Tesfai. Coming up, 
Millions of American families can't afford childcare, which costs more than $10,000 per year on average. After the break, Deepa hears how families are coping and speaks to a lawmaker who says his congressional dad's caucus could be part of the solution. Stick around. Working parents who are struggling to secure childcare face a joint problem of access and affordability. A new report shows that there are potentially 3.6 million families in the U.S. who need childcare but can't find any. Michelle McReady is the interim chief executive officer of the nonprofit Childcare Aware of America, and she joins us now to discuss the group's findings. Michelle, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Deepa. Michelle, we will get to the access issue, which is huge. But first, what are the key highlights from this new batch of data collected by your team on the state of childcare right now when it comes to affordability? Yes, so we are still seeing such a gap in affordable prices for childcare for so many Americans across the United States. It's around $10,681, which can be, for a single parent, up to 60% of their total household Mm. expenses. And so we really are seeing a grim picture with inflation going up and actually the price of childcare outpacing inflation at um, pretty significant rates. I mean, in that 10,000 figure you quote per year, you know, I know in, in past years it's been compared to the cost of going to college, but really I think what we should take away from this is, is also just the percentage of one's income. If that's over 50%, in some cases 60, as you mentioned, how do people even afford this? That's a great question. And I'm glad you mentioned the annual price of a four-year college. We saw in every single region that childcare actually outpaced the cost of in-state tuition. And so we are seeing parents really have to cobble together, take out of their savings, you know, really try to borrow even loans in some cases to try to pay for this exorbitant cost to their family and household Mm. budget um, that really hits them hard. And then the other part of the problem which your report found and I think many parents around the country feel acutely is there isn't really that much available. Now, your colleagues connected us with Ashley Burns, the CEO of Indiana Diaper Bank, to share her frustrating experience with access. And she says the last few months looking for childcare for her 18-month-old foster baby felt like a full-time job. She and her family spent seven weeks calling around 42 locations in her surrounding counties before successfully securing a spot. Let's just take a listen to her. She says it's been a huge relief. I no longer have to plan Zoom calls around a nap schedule. My husband and I are able to work our full-time hours and jobs, so we are able to provide for our new foster placement and our family. Fostering is hard enough, and adding not being able to find childcare made it feel hopeless. Mm, I mean, seven weeks and 42 locations to find a spot for her child. How often do you hear stories like this? Unfortunately, Ashley is not alone. Um, We do know and we saw from our data that 
out of the 12.3 million children that have parents in the workforce, there were only 8.7 million licensed childcare spots available, resulting in a gap of around 3.6 million. So that's a very significant gap. And really, we've found that parents that want that flexibility and that care that is quality, especially with infants and toddlers, that really there's not the spaces available to meet the demand. I mean, it sounds a bit like a crisis if there are so many less seats available than babies, toddlers and children under five. It really is. And among the 40 states that Child Care of America looked at, we also found a 10% decrease in family child care homes um, over the last three years that were used to be available. And this is an alarming trend because family child care homes are really an affordable option, a community option for so many families. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's an important choice. And so we are concerned about this trend and really know that, that parents are really grappling to find child care right now. And family childcare homes are people who run childcares out of their own home. They're licensed usually in the county or their state, and and that's a, a big part of the childcare map. What does it mean in the context of parents being able to work if their kids don't have care? It's such a critical part. If the pandemic didn't teach us anything else, it was, you know, that childcare was front and center to make sure that parents had peace of mind so they could continue to work, um, even on Zooms and all the ways in which we had to. And when childcare was not available, um, we really don't have a workforce that's available. Yeah. Just finally, we only have a few seconds left. Any recommendations? Is there any silver bullet to solve this? So the pandemic has highlighted, right, the pre-existing challenges with the system of, of early education. And there was significant investment made during the pandemic. And right now, Congress is considering federal appropriations bills to have an increase to the child care and development block grant in a significant way. And so investing in the system and continuing those investments will really help ensure that the child care workforce is compensated adequately and that families can have affordable options um, to choosing childcare. Michelle McReady is the Interim Chief Executive Officer of Childcare Aware of America. Michelle, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Let's bring in a member of Congress now to talk more about policy solutions. (laughs) Oh, hi, baby Hodge. Okay, no, we're not going to be talking to this super cute little baby, but we are going to be talking to little Hodge's dad. He's California Democrat Jimmy Gomez, who recently co-founded the Congressional Dads Caucus. Representative Gomez, welcome to Here and Now. Yeah, thank you for having me. So our audience may remember you as the guy who wore your son Hodge in a carrier on the House floor last month during the Speaker election of Kevin McCarthy. There were pictures all over the internet and social media. You made a lot of people go, wow, with that baby carrier. Tell me why you brought your baby, especially to such a contentious vote. Well, for me, it was just, it was very simple. It was like before he was born, I wanted to 
bring him to the House floor um, when I was getting sworn in. I, and I'm a first-time dad. I'm proud of my son. And I just wanted to show him off. And also, I think it tells it for me, it tells the story of America. I'm a son of immigrants. And in one generation, my parent, you know, from my parents being, my dad was a bracetto worker, worked in the fields. And my mom cleaned homes in a laundry room, attended in a convalescent home to a member of Congress. And he's an inheritor of that. American dream, that story. And so I wanted to bring him just for that simple reason, to just to show him off. You know, seeing you with your baby did make me wonder what would happen if a woman did that in the workplace. I'm not sure it would go down as well. N- no. Uh, you know, one of the things I acknowledge that the attention that I received from that situation was outsized. And and that's where you see that double double standard. So the double standard is, is real. Mm. And and so you, you found the Congressional Dads Caucus. What do you hope to achieve? Well, the concept of the Congressional Dads Caucus is, is simple. Uh, men need to do their equitable share of the parenting at home and in advocating for policies that impact working families. That's why one of the things we want to do is push for a national paid family leave program that focuses on working people, um, the expanded child tax credit that proved so successful during the time it was implemented, cut child poverty from 40 to 60 percent, depending on where uh, somebody lived, and affordable child care that I think people at a lot of different income levels feel the the pain. Um, So we want to make sure that we can advocate for those policies. Representative Gomez, I want to ask you, with all due respect, the things, some of these things are things that Women, feminists, mothers, even the Congressional Mamas Caucus have been pushing for. We don't seem to have much movement on it. In some ways, childcare and other issues are getting worse. How do you plan to use your platform? And and I have to say, maybe your male privilege to help in this issue. Exactly. First, I'm a member of the Mamas Caucus. I was a founding, one of the original members. And that's because... I've been working on these issues for my my entire career. And what happened was I want to just use the momentum of all the attention that was on Hodge, the fact that there is a double standard, that people pay attention to male uh, legislators when they're talking about these issues that women have been advocating for a long time in order to kind of push and make sure that we get more support. Um, maybe we can deliver a different message. Maybe we can just keep the the public's attention on it. But we're going to be working hand-in-hand with the Mamas Caucus. Rashida Tlaib is a member who is the chair of the Mamas Caucus of the Dads Caucus. So we're, we see this as working hand-in-hand. And what about bringing Republicans on board so far? Your caucus is 20 Democrats but no Republicans. Well, uh, here's the thing. There, people have different ideas. Good example, the child tax credit, for example. We prefer that it's fully av- advanceable and refundable. Why? Because if it only applies to the people that owe taxes, then it doesn't help working people that often need the help the most. So you end up having a situation where you're helping people, uh, you're not helping people that are in the most need. That's a big policy difference that we're fighting with Republicans. That's a priority of mine because I know that's going to have a, a huge impact on cutting child poverty in this country because we already we already showed it. So um, there are differences in how we approach these programs, and we have to have those debates. And maybe we can we can bring some of them over, or maybe we can um, look at it a little differently to have the same impact. We still don't know. 
Jimmy Gomez, Democrat from California and co-founder and chair of the Congressional Dads Caucus. Representative Gomez, thank you. Thank you so much. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Sam Rafelson, Chico Theori, and Ashley Locke. Our editors are Julia Corcoran, Todd Munt, Jill Ryan, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Caleb Green and Max Liebman. Theme music by Max, me, and Mike Moschetto. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you tomorrow.